Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 80th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So uh, this week, we're going to deviate a little bit from our normal schedule, as we have a very special guest on the podcast today that we think you guys are going to enjoy. Um, so I'll let Matt introduce our guest. Thank you, Mark. So our guest this week is uh, Mr. Callum Thomas, and Callum is the founder and managing shareholder of Top Down Charge. Um, Top Down Charge does excellent research, and there have been many times in the podcast, Mark, we've referenced this in the past. Uh, Callum's career background is in multi-asset investment management in New Zealand and Australia, and he has a focus on investment strategy and economics. Callum has a passion for global economics and asset allocation strategy and has developed strong research in analytical expertise across economies and asset classes. Callum's approach is to be deployed as a blend of factors to build out his holistic pictures and raise conviction. This includes looking at valuations, monetary conditions, cyclical indicators, sentiment, and technicals. We talk about that a lot in the podcast, Mark. Callum believes innovation is vital to maintaining um, an edge through the investment research, is on a constant mission to uncover and develop new data sets, indicators, and new ways of looking at the world to drive sensible and profitable decision-making by portfolio managers. So, Mr. Thomas, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a nice introduction. Yeah. So, I guess just before we get started, um, can you just tell everyone kind of how you got into what you're doing today? Did you kind of just fall into it, or have you always had a passion and knew exactly that you were going to be doing all this research, um, you know, for your career? Yeah. Um, well, it was kind of like, I guess, like all things, a bit of a meandering path. Um, about the age 16, I brought my first stock and um, sort of started to catch the market bug at that point. And from there, um, well, well, yeah, as a, as I said, a meandering path. Um, my first job out of high school was at a sawmill. Um, so that was uh, quite a, about as far away as you can get. Um, but the reason for that was um, because I wanted to have some money, more money to invest. So um, it, all, it all makes sense. Um, but after that, I mean, that didn't last very long, of course. Um, and I ended up studying um, initially a financial planning diploma. So, um, yeah, got a similar sort of roots there. Yeah. Um, and then, but then I decided, well, that was doing that um, extramurally or correspondence. And then in the end, I figured I'd better go up to campus and which was on in Auckland, which is our biggest city over here. Because I figured, yep, I'll go to campus um, finish off a full degree there, get a job in Auckland. And then of course, um, I get my job in Wellington. Um, and, um, and that was at NZX, so the New Zealand Stock Exchange, um, which, uh, you know, I think like NASDAQ is, um, quite a diversified business. And so, um, you know, I was in the corporate strategy team there, getting my hands into all sorts of different things and, um, really getting exposed to quite a broad range of, um, of work and 
getting a good sense of what I didn't like doing as well as what I did like doing. And um, after that, went to AXA Global Investors in an economic analyst role and figured, um, figured out that that's kind of my thing. Um, and from there, I mean, I just, you know, I was in a small team. So obviously you get to look at and get involved in, you know, the whole portfolio management process. But, um, you know, again, again and again, you know, had a bit of bit to do with manager selection, had a bit to do with liquidity management, all the rest of it. But again, kept on coming back to investment strategy, economics. Um, you know, I just, um, you know, the more I did it, the more I realized that, that that's my thing. And the better I got at it, the um, the more I liked it. <laughs> you know, it's funny how these things work out. And um, and then, of course, you know, as the salary goes up as well, the more you like it even more. So it's um, it was, um, I think, you know, there was a glimmer of um, interest and passion to begin with, but um, it's certainly, um, I would say, uh, a passion that has grown and even more so since um, I left there and, um, you know, now almost five years ago started Top Down. It's, um, yeah, it's been a, a interesting journey and um, over that time, just um, leaps, further leaps and bounds of, um, you know, innovation, um, skill, just, um, you know, I think if you feed the talent, it just continues to grow. Nice. Nice. So I guess just kind of starting off, what are kind of, you know, the macro themes that you're monitoring for 2021? Uh, obviously it was a, just like every other year is interesting in, in the stock market, uh, you know, 2020 yep. threw us for, for a ride up and down. Um, but you know, what are the big things that are on your radar for this upcoming year? Um, pretty similar to last year, actually, um, in the quarterly packet has put out, um, the first line there was themes that echo. And, um, I think that's a pretty good, um, summary. And, you know, one of the big themes that echo is monetary policy and it's not just echoing from 2020, it's echoing from 2019. So in 2019, you saw globally central banks just went on an easing spree and um, that had, because we, we actually saw a little mini recession into 2019 in the back half there, and it started to sort of turn the corner. And um, of course, that, that plan was set aside. Um, and then you went from an initial policy pivot to a policy panic where, um, you know, the, the scale of stimulus that we saw last year is just, um, is truly historic in terms of the magnitude, uh, the global coordination, the speed, um, the innovation. <laughs> um, there's a, you know, I've, I can't remember the exact number, but we've now got more than 20 central banks around the world doing quantitative easing. So that's, um, you know, it was an unconventional policy tool, but now it's a mainstream policy tool. So, yeah, and it's still, I think we're, we're, we're understanding it more and more now because it's been around for um, over a decade now, um, certainly in America. Uh, but it is, you know, there's still elements of, you know, it is somewhat experimental still. But that said, um, yeah, that massive amount of monetary easing is baked in. Um, I don't think we see much more easing this year. As a matter of fact, I'd say that if we see any more stimulus this year, it's going to be on the fiscal front. And of course, with the election results, that's, um, you know, the, the gates are 
pretty wide open for that um, with, with regards to America. But even um, like you look at Europe, Japan, they've got pretty hefty fiscal stimulus programs on the, um, on the books, both approved and planned. And um, a big part of their programs um, is this idea of economic transformation. So they want to do, you know, yes, give the economy a bit of a short-term helping hand, but also um, put in place uh, some longer-term measures that are going to help, um, you know, lift uh, sort of potential growth going forward. So things like infrastructure investment, which, you know, is also on the agenda, of course, uh, in America as well. So that's, um, I think that those are, you know, not the only game, but that's the, the big game. And then there's a, there's a few sort of um, side themes to that, which would be green shoots. We're seeing clear economic green shoots, um, particularly with regards to global trade. Um, and also backlogs um, are a big issue. So pandemic disruption to the supply chain. I think that um, it's, I think it's relatively well understood, um, perhaps not completely fully appreciated in terms of um, what kind of impact it has. It's, I mean, it, it is probably more of a short-term thing. Um, those other themes probably endure for a bit longer, but um, just, you know, backlogs of production, um, inventory shortages, you know, for instance, the, the anecdote I like to use is, we went to the bike shop um, late last year to get our daughter a bike and um, they had very limited choice and they said they weren't getting new bike models in for at least a year. They couldn't get parts to repair bikes for, you know, six to 12 months. So, you know, it's a, it's just one anecdote, but it's quite a real thing. And, you know, what that does is it puts upward pressure on prices because, you know, back to economics 101, if demand stays constant, you bring down supply, price goes up. Um, but also the, the plus side of it is that at some point, factories are going to have to really step up production to clear that backlog and firms are going to have to rebuild their inventories. So that's like a little bit of a um, potential boost to, to growth um, when and as it happens. So Callum, that's a great point. In your estimate, if I made you guess, how long do you think it's going to take for supply chains around the world in general to somewhat normalize? You think this is more of a shorter term theme that might happen by the summer, or you think this is going to play out over the course of the next couple of years? Hmm. I think it is a this year story. Um, of course, you know, the, the big question is, um, how the virus progresses because you know for many people that is the um the constraint like you know the reason the factories are behind is because their workers were locked in their homes so um you know it's you you can't really um you know build bicycles in the factory from home you know yeah. um so it's kind of easier for us office workers but um yeah um in the in the the, the real, the manufacturing sector, it's a bit, a bit of a different story. So my, my, if I had to guess, I'd say that it, that we do see more of that this year. Um, but again, you know, the, the efficiency and efficacy of the vaccine. So, you know, how effective it is, but also how quickly it can be rolled out. 
um, is, a, is going to be a big variable. I don't really have a strong view on that. It's um, yeah, it's uh, sort of one of those things that we we kind of have to just um, you know try and get some visibility on. But you know we have to sort of focus on what we can know, um, which is a sort of core bread and butter and charts and indicators. Um, the other thing would be, I guess, the, the demand signals, but I think the demand signals are pretty, pretty clear. So it's, uh, it's probably just that, that, that unknown, unknown, well, that known unknown that's uh, the hold up there. Yeah. So uh, from your perspective, next question I have for you is, uh, what are your favorite and least favorite asset classes for the year here of 2021? Um, yep. So f at the highest level, it would be growth assets. So f growth assets are um, all risk assets. So equities, commodities, um, stocks, commodities. Um, and then on the least favored side would be bonds, um, defensive assets. So cash, gold. Um, and if you put them on that side of the sheet, credit and REITs. Um, yeah, I think credit and REITs are sort of... Um, the most uninteresting, like I put them in the quarterly pack as uninteresting ideas because they're in that, there's, there's just all these crosswinds for them that, that make um, coming to a strong view quite difficult. So, I mean, my, my view is basically neutral for both credit, corporate credit and REITs because, um, yeah, leaning, leaning bearish. Just because, um, like, if you think about REITs, they had up until last year acted sort of as a defensive asset. But then um, the moment that the pandemic hit, uh, people realized that, uh, okay, the, um, you know, retail, hotels, resorts, healthcare, uh, dead money for, you know, for the foreseeable future until things normalize. You know, if you're optimistic on normalization, that's a pretty good sector to, to um, play. I mean, they, it did bounce pretty strongly when we had the vaccine announcement. But then you look at the office apartment sectors and they've been in the steady downtrend of relative performance against S&P 500. And to me, that's basically the market just slowly, increasingly getting its head around the idea that work from home is probably going to be with us, you know, long after the pandemic. Um, People are going to be reevaluating whether they need to, want to live in cities. Um, and so that sort of creates some fundamental questions around those sectors, the sort of accelerating existing trends. Um, and then you look at the, the remainder. So the specialty data centers, uh, logistics, um, storage, uh, those will probably act like traditional REITs. And so when you get a rise in yields, which is my base case, which we can get to, um, basically that sector will start to see headwinds. So it's, um, it's you know, on the other hand, of course, you always got to present a balanced view. Um, there is still a very large pool of capital that needs yield, um, needs income generating assets. And so, you know, that's why it's kind of difficult to get too bearish on the sector because there is, you know, especially in the zero rate, low yield environment, there is that kind of floor of demand, at least for that kind of asset. Yeah. So digging into like 
global equities a little more. You know, you have emerging yep. markets that are breaking out to all-time highs. Um, you have, you know, developed countries against S&P 500 that are starting to turn around a little bit with, you know, the weakening dollar. You think that's a a longer term trend that's developing or do you think it's something that's going to be short lived only for a couple months? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, one of the big ideas and it's going to be one of the things to get wrong or right over the next 10 years. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, again, going back to the packet, one of my punchlines was, um, I think now is the time to fade passive, to go against passive. Because, you know, if you think about passive, what is, what is it? It's um, just buy the biggest things out there and, you know, let market cap guide you where to invest. Um, that's worked really well for the last 10 years. So, you know, it, it does have its merits, but, um, you know, basically it takes you into the winners and out of the losers. But the problem is things go in cycles. Um, and so if you think about... Where if you if you just brought global equities, you know a big part of that you're going to be heavily skewed into uh, U.S. equities, and um, the problem with that is that you have these fairly clear cycles of relative under and outperformance of U.S. versus rest of the world, mm -hmm. and um, these cycles tend to go in about ten to ten to fifteen year um, windows, and I believe we're at the you know towards about the definitely past the 10-year mark. So it's uh, this period of outperformance of the US versus the rest of the world is fairly long in the tooth. And what's resulted from that substantial and sustained outperformance has been a very big valuation gap. Um, I think that you know valuation is sort of often misunderstood as a investment tool. So um, it's not extremely useful in the short term and so that tends to um perhaps you know maybe have a lot of people sort of dismissing it or you know thinking oh well um you know it's not that useful there's other things that are more important but um the longer your horizon is the the greater emphasis you should put on valuation the greater confidence you can have in that measure but also the greater the extreme in valuation, uh, the greater confidence you can have or the, the louder that message um, speaks. And so if you look at the breadth of valuation, 90% of countries um, are trading at least 20% cheaper than America. And um, if you look at the headline um, numbers, it's more like 50% um, in some cases. So there's um, a very substantial valuation gap. And uh, I'd expect that that you know that is a pretty key uh, element for the strategic case. So, um, I guess just briefly thinking about some terminology here, strategic would be thinking you know multiple years, so maybe five to ten years, for instance, versus tactical is you know more of the um, you know what's happening this year, for instance. Um, and so that's I think the strategic case is pretty compelling. Uh, it also tends to map to cycles in the US dollar, which um, we're seeing a turn in that cycle as well. And that um, speaks pretty uh, clearly or importantly to the, the tactical case. Uh, weakness in the US dollar is um, definitely starting to lead or the relative performance starting to catch up to the US dollar. 
Um, and looking at the technicals, definitely we've seen that initial breakout um, of both 200-day moving average and some key support levels. So um, to me, it, it looks pretty good. Um, you know, from a timing standpoint, I've been talking about the strategic case for a while, but the tactical case looks particularly good going into this year. So, um, and I think um, also going back to the pandemic, um, the impact of the pandemic, if you think about the US side of things, a big part of that outperformance has been the tech sector. So the tech sector got a big one-off boost from the pandemic because, you know, all of these existing trends such as, um, you know, work from home, um, rise of Netflix, demise of retail, rise of e-commerce, that just got this one-off acceleration. So instead of, um, you know, perhaps expecting this trend to, to play out over five years, it played over, out over five months. Um, it's very hard to replicate that, you know, going forward. If anything, that those kind of trends taper off. Um, meanwhile, the, the rest of the world, they tend to be a bit more linked to the cyclical outlook or, you know, the sort of the real economic activity, which is only really starting to come through now and um, probably comes through a lot more significantly in the years ahead. And so if you think about the, the macro drivers um, from that point of view, um, that's another reason why I think that, that, that now is um, the time for these things to start to really play out. Yeah, and from a technical perspective too, you know, you take emerging markets. I always like the, the term, the, the longer the base, the higher the space. And, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, emerging markets pretty clearly has been in a very, very long base for a, nearly a decade now. So once, you know, that did break out to all time highs on a closing basis, I think it was last week, you know, that's, that's extremely bullish for someone like me looking at a chart, but I also want to see that relative chart turn around too, right? There's been a significant long underperformance of developed and emerging markets versus the S&P 500. And I still want to see a little more strength there before saying, hey, this is a, a change of trend. And I think that's one of yep. the you know, we can get so much out of relative charts rather than just looking at an absolute price basis chart. And that's exactly. something that I, I put into my calculation and the way when we go about making investment decisions is, you know, obviously we want to own the top performing uh, assets. And I think the best way to do that is just simply look at a relative chart. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's pretty important because, you know, emerging markets on a relative basis have been in a 10-year bear market, you know, if you look at it on a relative basis, so look on the absolute basis, yeah, it's just gone sort of sideways, but um, yeah, I guess, you know, it's that opportunity cost factors that we always, as investors, we always have to be mindful of, and, you know, it's all very well to own something that's going up, but if something else went up faster, um, and every, and yeah, and everybody else was owning that, then it's sort of, um, you know, it's a, a pat on the back, but <laughs> not, 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 um, you know, it could be a bigger pat on the back, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. um, yeah, I think that's that, you know, just because it reflects that angle, but also, um, yeah, you can, you can get a lot of extra information from those, uh, relative charts. Yeah. Callum, two, two observations. One has to do with, um, you know, passive investing might be entering a period where I think the returns are going to be harder. And so you always like to remind our listeners that past performance is not indicative of future results. 
And I'm just very much kind of agree with you that as that has become the crowded trade, I, I think that it's going to get harder for them to replicate those returns forward looking. Would you disagree with that? No, exactly. Um, not only does past performance um, not reflect future performance, but it sort of um, it so secedes for the um, the next steps. And um, you know, if you think about one of the core concepts or one of the core sort of beliefs I have is that they have this these cycles of mean reversion and valuations. And the the better the performance, the harder it is, you know. The better the performance, the higher the valuation, the more difficult it is to achieve the same kind of returns going forward. And um, yeah, I think we're, you know, with regards to valuations, we're already at dot com levels, you know, dot com bubble levels um, in terms of the US. So, you know, it's definitely going to be challenging for. I think just the whole set and forget, go passive. And I believe that the best opportunities in the US, if you, yeah, frankly, the best opportunities are outside of the US, but um, if you had to stay there, the best opportunities are gonna be to be looking at rotation. Um, so favoring the old laggards. So, you know, value versus growth is a big one there. Um, I've, taken a slightly different approach to looking at value versus growth. Um, so if you look at um, the S&P 500 value index and compare that to the S&P 500 growth index, uh, there's, a, there's about a 40% variance or difference between um, what the sector weights are. So if you look at growth, um, if, you, if you just you know, do a side-by-side -side comparison, you see that there's about a 40% difference. And on the growth side, that's all in technology tech related. Um, so the tech sector itself, but also consumer services sector, which um, now has some of the big tech names in it, and also consumer discretionary, which is also increasingly techy. Um, then on the, the value side, you see it basically in two groups of sectors. So um, financials and energy, which is about a 20% um, difference there. And then healthcare, consumer staples, utilities on the other side, which is again that sort of other twenty percent to to square it all up. And so, to me, that basically looks like cyclical value versus defensive value. So, and and if you look at the relative performance, you do find that that defensive value side of things um, you know, acts like you'd expect. It almost looks like the VIX, and in, in terms of um, you know, rising during times of market stress. Um, but that the cyclical value side of things has been really the main driver of that massive sustained underperformance of value versus growth. And um, as a result of that, again, going back to valuations, we're now seeing basically record undervaluation of that sector. So um, the value is definitely there. Um, but then again, it's coming back to that macro picture uh, energy and financials took a big um, hit last year because they were at the forefront of the economic collapse. But um, coming out of it, they they will be set to gain from normalisation, from recovery, and um, better sentiment. And then again, the tech sector. I think um, yeah, it's 
it's back to more steady growth. Um, you know, again, harder to replicate that one-off sort of benefit that they got from the pandemic. So I think that's um, a particularly interesting one. Um, small caps versus large caps, that's clearly already begun to play through um, that force. A little bit. Yeah. Yep. And um, I'd, I'd say that, you know, that's probably another area that, that continues. Um, you know, it was, I was looked at that chart a while ago, it was um, small value. So yeah, small versus large had underperformed and um, value versus growth had underperformed and small value versus um, large growth um, was yeah, the worst. It was the worst of both worlds, but now I think that it gets the best of both worlds. And my other observation, Callum, had to do in regards to the U.S. Uh, 10-year Treasury. That yield's really starting to creep up over the last week or two, and it's starting to get a lot of notice here in the U.S. How is that viewpoint internationally? Um, well, speaking for myself, um, I look at Treasuries, my valuation indicators are pretty expensive, um, well, extremely expensive. Um, and of course, you know, part of that is the Fed's monetary policy operations has, you know, artificially increased the price of treasuries or suppressed the, the yield. Um, but I look across the various macro market indicators. So for example, the purchasing manager indexes, um, business confidence, um, a few other sort of interesting intermarket analysis. So copper gold ratio versus the 10 year yield um, and a few others. But basically you've got half a dozen indicators pointing to higher yields. So um, to me, seeing the 10 year yield starting to tick up is kind of like, well, yep, that's, that's what it should be doing. Um, the catalyst, of course, was the election. So that's um, a pretty important background feature. Uh, the fact, you know, if, should we get increasing stimulus, that's going to increase the growth and inflation outlook. And so you'd logically expect treasury yields to head up. Um, you know, one question that I do get uh, when I talk about, because I, I, I would say that, you know, the breakout in treasury yields is just the start and that we do see a steady increase in yields um, as the recovery progresses, as uh, the, the torch gets passed from monetary to fiscal policy. Um, one pushback or one question that I do have around that is, um, well, what about the Fed? Wouldn't it, um, you know, put in yield curve control or yield caps, um, or would it restart quantitative easing? And I think that that comes down to the the nature of the the move. So, if we saw a hundred basis point increase in the ten-year yield across five days, that would be one thing. If we saw it across five weeks, that would be arguably another thing. So, um, if it was really fast big disruptive move, then the Fed probably does step in. Um, and then also, well, and, and just to wrap that up, um, if it's a more sustained, you know, gradual increase, then it probably stands by. But the other thing is the is what's actually driving it. Um, if yields are going up because the growth and in inflation outlook is improving, then, you know, they probably would stand by. And I mean, at, at that point, they probably think, well, rather than doing more easing, we've got to actually start to think about how we might taper or normalize, you know, begin to normalize or at least um, begin to think about or, you know, whisper about, you know, normalization. I think, 
it's um what's well, it's probably one of the biggest risks i think to markets over the next 12 to 18 months is the pathway out of this for central banks because at some point um you know these things all go in cycles it's easy to sort of fall into the trap of thinking oh monetary policy is going to be easy forever we're going to have quantitative easing forever but um these things do go in cycles and at some point they're going to have to um for you know first step is do less easing then the sec you know aka tapering and then the second step would be outright tightening which um you know again is sort of um almost an anathema to, to, to even begin to talk about um at this point but you know the it with each day that passes um that day draw, draws nearer and certainly as the growth and inflation outlook improve um at some point they are going to have to have that conversation and if they leave it too long then um they risk a 2013 style situation with the taper tantrum that we had back then yeah yeah and um but ultimately you know again these things do go in cycles and so for me looking at that growth versus defensive allocations the time to get more defensive is when the fed begins to tighten so you know again i think that's probably a story for later in the year maybe even next year but it's um definitely something that's going to be showing up at some point yeah Appreciate that. And these are great views. Um, we're getting close to our time. Mark and I have one more question. We think this is going to be a fun one. Um, Mark, you want to ask it? Yeah. So you do an interesting thing on, on Twitter every week, which I, I love. You do like a, a, a sentiment poll. Um, so you ask if people are bullish, bearish, and, and why. So are they bullish or bearish because of fundamentals or because of technicals? So can you give listeners an insight into you know, why you started it and, and why you do that? Yeah. Um, so I think it was about four years ago now that I started that. So I have to think about why. Um, I think, well, the main reason was um, I, saw, I, felt, I saw the survey feature on Twitter and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I thought, oh, why don't I start a new survey um, or just experiment with this? And, um, you know, because most, most surveys, they'll ask you if you are um, you know, bullish or bearish um, or neutral. Sometimes they give you that answer option as well. Um, and, you know, there's not really much reasoning behind that. And so I thought, oh, what if, what if we um, made people, you know, give a, at least a, semblance of reasoning behind their um their question their um their, their position so let, let's um let's ask them if they're bullish or bearish for technical reasons or for um more fundamental reasons and um you know i just kept doing it every week and then the data you know collecting the data in an excel sheet and then patterns started to emerge and yeah it, it, it ended up being quite an interesting experiment and you know um the half of the fundamentals um, rationale actually ended up mapping quite well to things like the PMI. Um, and it sort of tended to give this kind of slower moving measure of sentiment, which um, you might expect because the fundamentals tend to be a little bit slower moving, whereas the technicals would swing around quite a lot week to week. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been quite an interesting experiment. Um, you know, the interest is grown um i found that you know when um if, if the 
responses to the survey are less than 300. It swings around a lot, but you know, the moment the responses get above 300, uh, the results stay fairly consistent. They don't tend to move around a lot. And you know, some some people said, oh, but you know, you're only surveying a few a few hundred people, sometimes a thousand people, but you know, it's not that representative. But then, you know, the fact that it doesn't move around that much once you get beyond that point is kind of um, is almost a bit telling, you know. Yeah, that's so, what makes um, the market, right? Exactly. What was, yeah. uh, I'm curious, what were people saying uh, on your poll in the beginning of 2020 before COVID hit? Was it euphoric bullishness or was it kind of in the middle? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty bullish to start the year. Uh, I think you know, some, some people kind of reflected on the fact that we're entering 2021 with a, quite a bit of optimism and, you know, sort of like, oh, but you know, we entered last year with optimism as well, and that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, in hindsight, I mean, well, if you took away the pandemic, uh, the forces that were in place at the beginning of last year, um, I think that would have actually been well-placed optimism. We would have seen, you know, basically what I expect to see this year, you know, um, decent market performance, uh, higher yields, all the rest of it. Um, but interestingly, the way that it, that the survey unfolded through the pandemic, um, you know, in terms of the, the crash, um, you did see sentiment shift very quickly, um, you know, particularly in the weeks up to it. Um, and also one sort of interesting side note was that the responses went way up as well. <laughs> A lot more people. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, and also I guess people that were more curious about that and so they wanted to participate in that, um, whereas uh, it, um, the the weekly res- response numbers have kind of tapered off since then. I think people are a bit more, you know, back to business or sort That's of complacent maybe. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's been an interesting experience. It's one that's going to continue. It's... Um, yeah, I've got the, some charts from that and the, um, the sentiment pack that I produce as well. So, yep. Um, and that comes, yeah, I do that at the end of the weekly chart storm that I do on Twitter as well, which, um, yeah, I, again, that was one that I started over five years ago and um, I kind of, you know, just started trying it and then um, it became a weekly habit and I haven't missed it um, once over those years, um, even when I've been on holidays, um, yeah, I remember one morning sitting um, in the restaurant cafe in Samoa, um, tweeting out my 10 charts. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, sometimes some pretty scenic backdrops. Yeah, it's like Mark and I trying to produce the podcast every week. We've done an excellent job, but sometimes we do it remotely like we are now, right? <laughs> yep, yep. Well, there's a lot to be said about consistency, you know, definitely for social media, definitely also in investing and um, I think in all areas of life. Yeah. Um, that's a big area for me this year is um, just, you know, consistency, like teaching my daughters to read and, um, you know, exercise, health, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, consistency. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, just the last thing here, Calm, you know, is the best way for people to follow your work on Twitter or where would you direct people to go if they want to read more of your stuff? 
Yep, um, Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, that's pretty much the two main areas that I'm at. Um, a little bit on the blog, but I tend to be a bit more active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Great. Yep. We'll link you to all those when we post this podcast for you. Yep. Good. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on, Callum. We really appreciate uh, your time, and um, you know, hopefully, we'll we'll be able to do this again soon, maybe in a couple months or maybe a year from now, and see see what changed and see if anything yep. we talked about uh, begins to play out. Yep. For sure. Yeah. It was a great chat, and um, definitely would appreciate the chance to sort of review it and see what went right and what went wrong. It'd be fun. Thank you, Mr. Thomas. You're the best. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.